The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everyone. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can support the show by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Jason, Caroline, Day, and Stephen for their recent contributions. In honor of the 100th episode of this podcast, which is a sentence I can't believe that I'm uttering, I posted a free bonus episode over on Patreon. In it, I discuss the archaic V2, or verb second, syntactic structure that exists in a handful of modern English expressions like, here comes trouble, there goes the neighborhood, and never have I ever. Just go to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or follow the hyperlink in this episode's show notes, and it'll be right there for you to listen to whether you're a monthly contributor or not. I hope you all enjoy it. And with that, let's get on to today's main episode, part two in a series on math terms. So when I say Google, math is probably not the first thing that comes to mind. But the reality is that before Google was a multinational tech company and household name, the word Google was a math term and not a particularly practical one. The original meaning of Google as a common noun, which, by the way, is spelled G-O-O-G-O-L, not G-O-O-G-L-E, Google is 10 raised to the 100th power. If you were to write that in decimal form, it's the number 1 followed by 100 zeros. If you think Google sounds like a silly word for such a prodigious number, I'd have to agree with you. It kind of sounds like a kid made it up. And as it turns out, a kid did make it up. The story of the word Google allegedly goes back to a stroll that took place in the mid-1930s between the prominent American mathematician Edward Kasner and his nine-year-old nephew Milton. Kasner asked his nephew what you'd call a number with a hundred zeros, and his nephew replied, a Google. Apparently, Kasner liked his nephew's response enough to introduce it into the formal mathematical lexicon. The word Google also inspired the term Googleplex, which is 10 raised to the power of Google. So, 10 times 10 with 100 zeros. Writing out a Googleplex would require more space than is available in the universe and a greater amount of time than the accepted age of the universe. So, where did Kasner's nephew get this word Google from? It has a playful sort of sound to it, so you might be inclined to think that it was a brilliant piece of improvised, unfiltered kid-speak. But this is most likely not the case. 
Kasner's nephew, Milton, probably borrowed the word Google from the last name of Barney Google, the main character in a popular American comic strip from the early 20th century, entitled Take Barney Google, for instance, by cartoonist Billy DeBeck. Retitled Barney Google and Snuffy Smith in the 1930s, DeBeck's comic strip is still running in newspapers around the world today and holds the record for the third longest-running comic of all time. If you've never seen the cartoon character Barney Google, he kind of looks like a more colorfully dressed and neurotic version of the Monopoly Man with enormous eyeballs that pop out of his head. Those eyes have in fact given us the phrase googly eyes, meaning an oblivious adoring stare. It's also the de facto name for those plastic toy eyes that have a black disc encased inside of a semisphere with a white background. The term, googly eyes, is first recorded in a hit 1923 song, Barney Google with the googly eyes. So if we get the word Google from Edward Kasner, who got it from his nephew Milton, who got it from the Billy DeBeck comic book character, where did Billy DeBeck get it from? This we don't really know. One possibility is that he did indeed just make it up. Billy DeBeck had a reputation for using language playfully and creating nonsense words, so Google could have just been a combination of sounds that pleased DeBeck's sensibilities. It's also possible, maybe even likely, that since the Barney Google character has big, googly eyes, that DeBeck derived Google from goggle. The term goggle-eyed, which is the structural and semantic predecessor to googly-eyed, is actually attested in the early 18th century. There's no concrete evidence that this term inspired Billy DeBeck, but it's as good a guess as we have. That said, Google and googly actually can be traced further back in the written record than Barney Google, and it's impossible to say if there's a direct lineage connecting these terms to Billy DeBeck's comic strip, or even connecting these terms to each other. In the mid-19th century, a Nashville journalist described the sound of an out-of-tune opera singer as, quote, a guttural Google Google Google, end quote. Lawrence Bergen's biography of Louis Armstrong includes a quote from Armstrong in which he describes the sound of drinking beer as Google, Google, Google. Obviously, both of these uses are onomatopoetic. Then there's a googly, which is when a ball follows an unpredictable path in cricket. This term dates back to the early 20th century. Last but not least, we have the Google Book. The Google Book is the name of a British children's book written by V.C. Vickers in 1913, and in it, the Google is an imaginary monster that lives in a pond in Google land. Again, it's hard to say if these seemingly unrelated appearances of the playful-sounding word Google represent an etymological continuum, to the extent that a nonsense word can be said to have an etymology, or if they're independent coinages. An argument for the latter actually isn't implausible. There is something onomatopoetic, something throaty about Google that seems equally descriptive of the sound of bad singing or the sound of someone guzzling beer. But an argument for the former isn't implausible either. Google is a fun-sounding word that, until Kasner's usage, doesn't really refer to anything concrete. 
and therefore it's possible that it got passed around in spoken language as a precomposed go-to set of nonsense syllables that could be used in a variety of scenarios rather than a word with semantic implications. Just a few minutes ago, I mentioned that de Beck may have based the surname of Barney Google off of the word goggle. And if this is true, had he heard this nonsense word Google out in the wild? Or did he independently arrive at a word exhibiting this same set of sounds? We'll never know. But nonetheless, this is all good linguistic food for thought. Anyway, back to Kasner, the mathematician. Kasner introduced the words Google and Googleplex into the public discourse in 1940 in a book he co-authored entitled Mathematics and the Imagination. In 2021, when we hear the word Google, we immediately associate it with the spelling G-O-O-G-L-E. But like I said, Kasner's Google was spelled and is still spelled G-O-O-G-O-L. When Kasner's nephew coined the word Google for 10 to the 100th power, it was presumably a verbal coinage that he didn't spell out. While Kasner's nephew may have coined the word, we can probably attribute its spelling to Kasner, which is an odd spelling, in my opinion. G-O-O-G-O-L looks more like Google than Google to me, but it's possible that he deliberately chose this novel spelling to disassociate his term from the name of Barney Google, which indeed is spelled in the more familiar way, G-O-O-G-L-E. If this is true, then the spelling of Google, the company, is a respelling of a respelling. The word went from G-O-O-G-L-E to G-O-O-G-O-L back to G-O-O-G-L-E. More on Google's respelling of this word and its appropriation of Kasner's term in just a minute. Even though Kasner's Mathematics and the Imagination was a bestseller in 1940, it was, nonetheless, a nerdy math book, which is to say that the word Google wasn't a buzzword on the general public's lips. According to Google Ngram, which is a program that generates graphs tracking the frequency with which words appear in the English corpus, before the emergence of Google the company, usage of the word Google hit an all-time low in the 80s, which isn't saying much, since the word wasn't particularly popular to begin with. Before the late 90s and early 2000s, the word Google was most frequently used in the 1940s, the decade during which Kasner published Mathematics and the Imagination, and even then, it was an obscure term. But in 1997, that term would start to become a lot less obscure. In 1996, Larry Page and Sergey Brin were PhD students at Stanford University, working on a research project to improve internet search engines. And this research project would eventually spawn into one of the biggest tech companies of all time, Google. The original working title for this search engine research project was called Backrub, because it employed an algorithm that analyzed a web page's backlinks in order to determine their relevance to the search. So, yes, there is an alternate universe scenario where Google never changed its name and is instead still called Backrub. Terrible name, but luckily, Page and Brin realized this early on, and so they changed the name of their search engine to Google. So, why Google? 
When you do a Google search and go to the bottom of the page, there's the word Google spelled with 10 O's that let you go deeper into whatever search you're doing, right? Well, those O's look like zeros. And given what we've discussed in this episode thus far, maybe you've already put the pieces together. Google's founders thought that this name was a good metaphor for just how much data their new and innovative search engine would be processing. On Google's beta landing page back in 1997, the rationale for the search engine's name is clearly laid out. Quote, 10 to the 100th power, a gigantic number, is a Google. That's spelled G-O-O-G-O-L. But we liked the spelling Google, G-O-O-G-L-E, better. We picked the name Google because our goal is to make huge quantities of information available to everyone. And it sounds cool and only has six letters. End quote. However, neither Larry Page nor Sergey Brin, Google's co-founders, came up with this name. The ultimate credit goes to one Sean Anderson, another Stanford PhD student who, at the time, was one of Larry Page's office mates. Larry was having a brainstorming session with his office mates to come up with a better name for his search engine than Backrub, and Sean Anderson suggested Googleplex. Larry thought that was a good idea and shortened it to Google. Larry asked Sean to check the domain registry to see if Google.com was taken, but instead of searching for G-O-O-G-O-L.com, which recall is how the mathematical sense of the word was and is spelled, Sean searched for G-O-O-G-L-E.com, unintentionally misspelling it. Larry liked the look of this misspelling even more than the correct spelling of Google, and lo and behold, the domain G-O-O-G-L-E.com was available. And so, a few hours later, on that fateful day, September 15th, 1997, Larry Page registered Google.com for his and Sergey Brin's search engine. And the rest is history. This story is a good reminder that impactful coinages aren't always the product of meticulous deliberation. In fact, most of the time, they're not. This generally unpremeditated nature of word coinages is explored in depth with lots of examples in Ralph Kaiser's book, The Hidden History of Coined Words. Since that fateful day, Google has become such a huge part of our lives, culturally, technologically, and linguistically. As a word, Google has become so ubiquitous that we've turned the company's name, a proper noun, into a common verb. The phrasal verb, to do a Google, is first attested in 1999, while the simple verb, to Google, which is what we say today, is first attested a year later in 2000. In fact, the American Dialect Society called to Google the most useful word of 2002, and it's been a part of the Oxford English Dictionary as a verb since 2006. Initially, Google spoke out against the usage of to Google as a synonym for to use any search engine, because at that time, Google wasn't the monolith that it is today. There was Yahoo, AskJeeves.com, AOL Search, and other search engines that coexisted with equal prominence alongside Google before Google gobbled up its competition. Today, when we say we're Googling something, 99.9% .9 of the time, it does actually involve using the Google search engine. 
The genericization of brand names is a common phenomenon, as many of you know. Lots of us refer to gelatin as jello, tissues as Kleenex, and personal watercrafts as jet skis, all of which are patented names for specific products. Yeah, jet ski is a proper noun, which I did not know until recording this episode. The phenomenon by which nouns become verbs is also a common phenomenon. It's called verbing, or verbification, which is a rare example of a simple and clear term in linguistics. Verbing is not a new phenomenon, though in our present era of internet English, it's become increasingly popular and increasingly acceptable. But that doesn't stop the linguistic prescriptivists from complaining about it, and they have been complaining about it for centuries. In a letter to Noah Webster, Ben Franklin called verbing, quote, awkward and abominable, end quote. I don't want to fall off the cliff of digression just before wrapping up this episode, but let me just say that many verbs used in Ben Franklin's day, and certainly many verbs used by Ben Franklin himself, started off as nouns. To divorce, to drink, to mail, to model, to ship, to sleep, to transition, and to train are a short list of very common and very essential verbs that are a product of verbification. So, if you're the kind of person that complains about the verb to Google or verbification in general, then you also have to complain about verbs like to drink, to dress, and to mail. And if you complain about those verbs, I don't know what to tell you. All right, that's it for the 100th episode of Words for Granted. As always, I hope you loved it. Again, there's a free bonus episode available over at Patreon this month, so if, after listening to this, you wish you had some more Words for Granted, your wish is granted. Patreon.com slash Words for Granted is where it's at. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. And that's it. Have a great day, and I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted.